welcome to Happy Full Finding What Works, a podcast navigating mental health and wellbeing support so you can find what works for you. I'm your host, Kat Nichols, writer, content creator, and curious navigator of all things wellness. Sit back, relax, and let's find what works for us. Hello everyone and welcome to season two of Happy Fault Finding What Works. We are going to be kicking off season two with a meaty topic, which is fear. And as usual, I am joined by experts and those with lived experience to help me navigate the topic and help us understand what can help. So Francis, I'm going to come to you first for an introduction. Could you please let us know more about yourself and the work that you do? Hi there, Kat. I am Frances Trussell. I am a formerly very fearful person. I'm best known for my work in the field of mindfulness. I wrote a book called You Are Not Your Thoughts. Um, fascinated by the mind and trained in a number of modalities, including clinical hypnotherapy. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we're going to be delving a little bit more into hypnotherapy later on. And coming to you next, Zach, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about the work that you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Zachary Dillon, and I'm a fiction author. I've written and published two books so far. One is a collection of absurdist flash fiction illustrated by artists I admire. And then the second is my first novel, which came out last year. And it's very closely based on my personal experience with hearing voices and paranoia. And it's called I Hear You Watching. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I did have the pleasure of reading that and I'm going to be referring back to it a few times in this podcast. So definitely recommend listeners pick that up. Um, and Francis, your book as well, I managed to read as well. So I've, um, I've been very well read for this interview. <laughs> Perfect. Coming to Laura next, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah. Hi, Kat. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Laura Walton. I am a clinical psychologist and a scuba diving instructor. And so I specialise in working with divers. Um, usually with anxiety, trauma or phobias, things that are relating to accidents and diving, but not always. And in coming into that work, there's there's actually, there's no real route into being a, a specialist in working with divers as a psychologist. So I kind of had to shape that myself. Um, and so I'm still working at that as well, kind of, you know, raising awareness for how useful psychology and therapy can be to scuba divers. So I do that. I do a lot of courses. I do direct therapy and coaching with divers. and also people who aren't divers, I work with people who have issues relating to drowning because we don't really pay that much attention, I don't think, generally in therapy to drowning experiences. And there's a lot that can be done to help with that um, and other water-based traumas or just generally overcoming fears to other water sports like swimming and things like that. Just generally water. And I find that so fascinating. It's not something I've come across before. And I think that's why I was especially keen to invite you on to talk about that specific, specifically. So looking forward to delving into that. So to start with, I'd really love to hear a bit more about understanding the role that fear has played in some of your lives, whether that is personally or professionally. And Zach, I'm going to start with you. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you would say fear has impacted your life so far. Sure. I think it starts possibly like a lot of people's deep-seated fears maybe uh, uh, when I was very young, and it didn't start as a fear. I think uh, it's combined with a lot of different things and influenced by a lot of different experiences and, and thoughts that we have over the course of our lives. But I remember 
one of the earliest stories that my parents have of me interacting with other kids is when I went to preschool. I was two years old and I was standing at the side of uh, the playground watching all the other kids run around and play. And the teacher apparently came up to me and said, why aren't you playing with the other kids? And I said, because they didn't invite me. And I think that's a, a little bit of a Rosetta Stone moment for me because for the rest of my life, I kind of had that mindset of, I don't want to impose myself on other people. And I see that kind of stuff happen. Some of the worst atrocities are impositions, of course, and even the smallest things that, that stick with you and, and bother you or can hurt you are impositions from other people, whether they're intentional or not. And I didn't want to be a part of that problem. I didn't have an official romantic relationship until I was halfway through college, partially because I felt like showing interest in somebody else could be seen as I'm creepy or I'm if I come off the wrong way or something like that. So I, I kind of just uh, stood back for for a very long time. The problem is if you play into that too much and and let that sort of defensiveness and hesitation feed your actions or, or inform your actions, it turns into what I in writing my book and sort of this self analysis thing that I went through uh, writing the novel about my experience. I kind of jokingly label it, uh, the character is like an atheist with a fear of God. And the in this case, the God is other people, it's everybody else. The problem with that being God is that all of the judgment comes from other people who can't read your thoughts and, and intentions. So they don't know if you have the best of intentions. So they're just they're just judging based on whatever they see. It could be misinterpreted all over the place, which terrified me even more. <laughs> The problem with that is once the voices kicked in, which this happened about late 2013, once that started happening and I was hearing sort of a running commentary and judgment on everything that I did or everything that I said and, and being labeled as an imposition or look out, you know, what a stupid thing he did or something like that, it turned into not only is this God of the outside observing me and judging me, but what if it could read my thoughts? What if they do know what I'm what I my intention is? And what if this is a test? And they're testing me now to see what these intentions are, how I react to certain stimuli or something like that. And it turned into this whole, it could have been anything in my mind, because of course, it didn't exist. So I'm trying to find you know, a box to put it in. And it could have been anything from, you know, bullies hacking into my computer to the government and, and, you know, some big test that way. So it's, I kind of went into this big sea of, you know, anything is possible. I don't have any concrete proof. But just in case, I'm going to conduct myself as if this is happening, because that's the safest option is worst case scenario, if this actually is happening, then I can defend against it somehow, which is a rabbit hole. <laughs> Absolutely. I think what you described there is the seed of it being kind of afraid to impose yourself and how that just grows and grows and grows and it can turn into something else. I think a lot of people are going to relate to that. There was a particular quote that I feel just when I read it, it really encapsulated what fear is from your book. Um, so I'm just going to read out here. So it's the character kind of prefacing what's going to be coming up for them 
I'll walk to work each morning and home every night, refusing to look over my shoulder with my heart in my chest like a leaf about to fall. I'll have been the, a target of the universe, a searing pinpoint of light under the vast lens of the all-seeing eye. I believe that's on like the first page. <laughs> and I remember reading that and I was like, that that's fear. I mean, especially the the heart in my chest like a leaf about to fall. As someone who's experienced anxiety, I really immediately related to that. And I'm sure a lot of people will. Um, so yeah, I think you encapsulated it really well. And explaining how it can yeah grow is something... Yeah, a lot of people will relate to. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. And I the just to add a little bit to that quote, writing writing this and doing drafts and stuff like that, I started to discover Easter eggs I had I had hidden for myself. Where the all seeing eye, I capitalized that because it's it's God. It's the you know the overseer, but also I is what homophone for I the the, the self. And so he's he's already labeling this thing and not even realizing that he's actually already calling it himself watching himself from this other observational standpoint so there's a whole yeah it's there's a lot there's a, there's a lot to it a lot for the character to come to realize which yeah which is great thank you so moving on to laura i'd love to hear more about your experience of fear and kind of maybe what drew you into the work that you do specifically supporting scuba divers and people with water-based fears yeah, so I mean, I, with this question, it's kind of such a lot I can say because there's, in terms of like how kind of fear has impacted life, like it's um, there's just so many parts to it and so many aspects that it, that it, in so many different ways it has. For the purpose of this podcast, I wanted to maybe just describe how I got into diving in the first place because that was really relevant to fear. So kind of going back a little bit from that, uh, my first dive was in my twenties, and I only did it because I was traveling around the world, and it was kind of like it was it was like a dollar it was this it was the great barrier reef and it was a dollar to do the extra dive and i was like well i have to don't i but at that point i was i was really quite frightened of all the things that were under the water i'd, I'd had um, a very specific fear about that since i was very young and i can kind of trace back to where that even developed in the first place but it was really specific it wasn't the water so i absolutely loved water i would spend hours in a swimming pool i i loved being in water but there was something about the unknown, the uncertainty and the things that were underneath it that might get me. So the day before I did that that dive, um, it was a, you know, kind of a try dive. So I didn't have any background or anything like that. But the day before, I was just terrified and preoccupied with it. So I, I was quite anxious about it because I was kind of going around, you know, trying to avoid that fear. Because once you've got that fear in mind, you're trying to avoid it. And that's where the anxiety comes in. And that night I didn't really sleep. But then when I went out and did the dive, there was kind of this, you know, rush to get everybody off the back of the boat. And we got down, I put my head in the water and it came straight back up because I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and I figured out how I could breathe and then just went. And, and I was able to kind of step back from some of the thoughts that I was having. You know, that maybe fits into Francis's work as well. The, the kind of way we can get very stuck and fused around the thoughts about what might happen to us. We can get really pulled into them. And so one of the things I was able to do because I had a background in psychology at that point was just to be able to step back from those, those thoughts to be able to see, well, this is what I'm thinking, but I don't necessarily need to go with that and I want to do this. And then having done that, um, within minutes, I was utterly like transfixed. I was fascinated because I, what I thought was a flat surface, I got under the water. I was like, there's like a, an entire world down here. And once you're there and you see all the colour and all the things that you're interacting with and the fish, then that uncertainty has kind of been removed a little bit. And so it completely changed. So ever since then, um, I've kind of been 
you know progressing in different areas of diving so once you know I did that that um that dive and then I went on to learn to dive and that was good sort of 15 16 17 years ago something like that and throughout in that time I've, I've trained to be a, a diving instructor which is quite a long story as I was becoming a guide and instructor and helping other people to, to dive I could see that they had a lot of fear a lot of anxiety so I was learning ways to help people with that and at the same time I was training as a clinical psychologist so I was working and learning you know all about how to help people with fear anxiety phobia in clinical context so I was putting all that together as I went and eventually kind of realized there's just such a huge role for for supporting divers and there is nothing really there was nothing at the time really there um, not even that many blogs or anything like that never mind services to support divers so since then that's built more and more and I work a lot with divers who've had traumatic incidents accidents although it's quite rare you know diving is mostly very enjoyable very relaxed occasionally some things go wrong and it's quite helpful to be able to have a, a route where somebody will understand the whole world that you've been in when that happens. What I find so interesting about that is I think fear and anxiety can so often be about the unknown. Yeah. Just the uncertainty and the unknown. And I feel like the the sea, the ocean is just a, one giant metaphor for that because there's so much going on under the surface that we don't know about. So that's just a really interesting thing that you've been able to do to be able to support people, be comfortable with that. And I imagine that bleeds out into the rest of their lives, right? Yeah, people really build their confidence when they learn to dive because, you know, especially when there is that fear and it's not just unknown in the oceans, definitely. I mean, that's certainly a big factor. There is the unknown of what is out there, but also there's the unknown in yourself. Like when I'm teaching people to dive, they they don't know if they can do it because it's so strange and unfamiliar because the skills are not what they're used to. They just don't see how they're going to be able to do it sometimes. So when they've been in that place of completely not knowing and not not being able to do that and then going through a process of trusting themselves to go through that fear on the other side their confidence is often massively increased and then they take a lot of people will take that out into other areas too I mean I certainly do that as well amazing that sounds great thank you so much for sharing that and now Francis coming to you could you tell us more about how fear has impacted your life you mentioned in the intro that it's something you've definitely dealt with so I'd love to hear more about your experience of it personally and professionally so I was somebody who was just so caught in fearful thought loops and I worked in a very high pressured environment in the media and outwardly made things look relatively seamless and yet inwardly was an absolute wreck and could often be found hiding in the bathrooms having panic attacks and just felt like an enormous imposter as so many of us do throughout our lives. And over time, just pushing through and pushing through, I made myself really sick. And actually, that was the best thing that could have possibly happened because from breakdown so often comes the breakthrough. And I started going off on retreats and none of it made much sense to me at first, but something in me found me kept showing up and suddenly something clicked and it absolutely transformed everything for me so I'm so eternally grateful for that and that was about 15 years ago uh, I subsequently transformed my career and my life and have spent the last decade at teaching 
about eight years ago, I kind of reluctantly and pessimistically went into being trained to be a clinical hypnotherapist because I was just fascinated. What on earth is going on and how are they getting these fantastic results with anxiety? Because one of the things I was seeing with some early people that I was working with was an inability to access mindfulness because of this blockage of fear this fear of letting go this fear of relaxing this fear of releasing and relinquishing uh, the grip of thought that so many of us cling on to and for me the power of working both with the conscious with mindfulness and the subconscious in this way has had such powerful impact and looking back on my very fearful maybe decade or so that I spent really locked into those terrible cycles of beating myself up and thinking I was a terrible person I wish that I'd had these tools so it's such a gift to share them with others. I love that what you said there about bringing together the mindful and the subconscious kind of bringing the conscious and the subconscious together and the powerful effect that can have that sounds really great thank you for sharing. So we've mentioned a few times there words like fear and words like phobia, but I know there is somewhat of a difference. So Laura, I'm going to come back to you and ask if you could perhaps explain to us what the difference is, if there is one between a fear and a phobia. I will certainly try, but the, the there is a lot of discussion around this. I was actually just, um, I'm, I'm writing a course at the moment and I was delving into the kind of effective um, research, effective, uh, effective science as an emotion. And there's just, so much research and debate in there and so many different ideas about how you define stuff it's actually quite a tricky question but like in, you know kind of giving you the kind of basic answer is that fear is an emotion um it's one of our most basic responses to something threatening it, it's part of our survival it's kind of wired into us that when something scary happens something dangerous happens we have this kind of reaction that is there to protect us and so having some fear, some you know, having a fear of some things is rational and it's natural and it's adaptive, it's useful. Like we wouldn't function very well if we didn't have fear. Certainly in the environments I go into, I need fear because I need an alarm if I'm going to go and do something that's going to be dangerous to me. I need something to tell me when something is not working. Um, so fear is really useful in that sense as an emotion. But we can also develop specific fears and um some of those can still be useful. You know, if you have a specific fear of something that is in our environment and we might be exposed to it, then it might make sense to, to be to be fearful of it. But sometimes these specific fears can get really rigid and very stuck. That can be when it becomes an issue. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the problem is when it's not effectively regulated. So when it's taken out of context, like it's not it's not appropriate to the situation that we're in. It's not rational, you know, for where we are. When it's out of that context and it's not working anymore and it's not adaptive, then it might kind of get into this stock pattern, like a stock pattern of responding. And what we're actually responding to is not no longer the threat that's external. What we're responding to is an inside threat. It's our interpretation or kind of our kind of internalization of what it was that we were fearful of in the first place, because it might be that the thing is not even there. So when it gets into that kind of level, um, and it becomes irrational and it relates to a specific object or situation, then that is something that might be termed a phobia. And the phobia is also a medical diagnosis as well. I really resonate there with what you said about it. You become fearful of something that's not, that it's not really. So to give you a bit of an example, I, I have driving anxiety and I built up such a fear in my head of getting into an accident. And I've only been in one accident, but when that happened, 
I was surprised at how incredibly calm I was. <laughs> and I suddenly realized, I was like, oh, this was the worst case scenario for me was to somehow make a mistake when driving and get into an accident. And when it actually happened, I just, I won't say that anxiety has gone because it definitely hasn't. I need to do some work on that. But I'm definitely less fearful of that specific incident because it's happened and I know that I can cope with it. And I know the fear is something else entirely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, um, it's a really useful example to share as well. Thank you for that, because I think that will help be very relatable for, to people listening. And I think you're really kind of picking up on that key point. It's not so much the thing happening that's the problem, because that thing happening is something that is in the future. It's not, you know, although it's a, a potential real event, in your mind at the time that it's causing you the problem and the fear, it's not real in the sense that it's actually happening right now. And what we're actually responding to is this kind of internal kind of cycle of of kind of, I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to deal with this uncertainty. It's the uncertainty often that drives it, is I can't cope with that uncertainty. I need to find some way of removing that. I mean, this is not all conscious. I'm talking about the conscious aspect of it. But I need to get away from that fear. How can I do that? And then that sets off a whole load of defensive processes, some of which are behavioral things, which might be avoiding driving in that case, or it might be taking special measures to to feel less anxious while driving. And that can that can kind of take all kinds of forms. Some people might kind of end up with behaviors like I have to have this special bottle of water because it's kind of it's like a comfort blanket. And that can develop in the kind of behavioral sense, but it can also develop internally in the mind as well. Like I have to do things a certain way or I can't go that particular route or I, and we can kind of get really focused in on um, getting away from feelings. So it might be just listening to the radio a lot and not being able to focus on it. But what we're doing is we're not trying to fix the problem. What we're trying to do in that instant is we're trying to get away from the fear because the fear has become labelled as a problem. And we'll get locked into something called experiential avoidance, where we're trying to get away from the experience of the fear itself rather than address the problem. And rather ironically, it makes it more difficult to address the actual problem. Um, so I find this a lot in, in in diving and obviously all kinds of areas is that when you're locked in fear and trying to get rid of fear, you can't do the thing in front of you because your your mind is so taken up by it. And clearly, like, you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry you had an accident, by the way, but it seems like you're OK. It was fine. We were all fine. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's not going to be the main route for, for overcoming a fear like that. But it does it does raise one of the main cures for it, which is exposure. Like just like I talked about in my example, when we actually go and see the thing that we're frightened of, it can have that effect of of, of kind of taking it down a notch because we realize that actually we can cope with that feeling it, it is possible and that's what we often do in therapy because you, you can't always put people in the situations that they're frightened of because they are they are not necessarily safe situations to be in and the situations are ones we do want to avoid and prevent but we can in therapy we can stimulate the conditions for somebody to experience the internal stuff that is associated with that particular event that is something we do a lot in emdr i don't know if it's got um i actually don't know very much about clinical hypnotherapy but i think there are some some links so there might be some uh, aspects there that francis can pick up on but certainly in, in emdr in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that's one of the things we do would be taking people through facing that fear in their own mind in their own body before actually doing it in real life Mm, almost rehearsing it and being able to bring that sense of fear and anxiety down before you get to it oh that sounds good i need to look into this finding the right tools for you is something we're passionate about here at happy for 
On happyfull.com, you can connect with mental health and wellness professionals like counsellors, coaches, nutritionists, hypnotherapists, and holistic therapists located all over the UK. You can also browse our online articles, self-help tips, and subscribe to our monthly magazine for a regular dose of dopamine on your doorstep. If you're keen to explore what might work for you, whatever that may be, visit happyfull.com today. So Francis, I am going to come to you next actually to chat a bit more about hypnotherapy and how this can be a helpful tool in fear and phobias. Laura's absolutely spot on there that we have some similar processes to EMDR, including the eye movement within fast rewind technique, which is a fantastic technique for helping people say you have got an event or a memory in your past that still holds a lot of emotional charge for you. We can actually under at deep relaxation, we can actually revisit that memory and remove a lot of the emotional charge from that memory so that rather than that memory being stored in a quick draw file as a pattern match to other things which may then trigger us, we're actually reintroducing uh, it as a normal memory with a lot of that emotional charge removed. And therefore, as a result of that, what many people experience is that they're just not triggered by the same things anymore. It can have an enormously powerful impact very quickly. Now, for other people who have fears and they're not quite sure where those fears come from, we can also, through hypnosis, return to the very core roots of what's going on and what is at the base of the fear and then we when we work on reframing that again we can have this very powerful impact that occurs for most people very quickly and so it's just it's fascinating to see it's so interesting to hear the similarities between the two therapy approaches as well and how um, they overlap it's so so fascinating and we've talked there about a couple of clinical approaches that can support so hypnotherapy and kind of talking therapies but Zach I would love to hear more about your personal experience and what you found helped once you recognized that some of the experiences you were having were from fear-based responses and just generally what you found has helped you well first of all it took me a while to uh, let's say be led to water and then to convince myself that I could drink without being poisoned to not take the metaphor too far, but it was a defensive fear response and always, you know, just in case, err on the side of caution kind of a thing. In hindsight, I feel like it almost turned into sort of a gambling addiction also, because what I wanted, every spin of the wheel, if I stood next to that table and I put my chips down on a, you know, a certain number or something like that, based on whatever I thought I saw indicating, you know, whatever patterns were, were telling me bet on this solution, you know, you can record their voice coming through the smoke detector, or you can, you know, go talk to your neighbors, which was another weird, bad idea. But, but a lot of those kinds of things, I thought, like, if I can just outsmart them, if I can just try again a little bit differently. And so that kept me locked in that in that fear response. And that I forget um, the term that you used, Laura, but it was there was it was like experiential. I wanted to hang on to it. Experiential what? Ex experiential avoidance. Experiential avoidance. That's exactly what that. Yeah. And so that's what that turned into was I was afraid because it it kind of bloomed from 
me thinking that it was just my neighbors to everybody on the street is in on this. This is some grand scale, you know, there are agents everywhere kind of a kind of a thing, you know, because it could be anybody. I didn't have any proof anyway of anything. And I thought, you know, if I just stay at the table, the one thing I can't do is leave the table. But I I absolutely like my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and my parents eventually were able to suggest like, and this is something that I strangely, strangely never thought of, I think because I'd never had this experience of hallucination or of paranoia, I'd had anxieties, but they weren't like this. So because this was the first time, I never thought to ask myself, what if it's not real? It seemed so real to me. And I've learned actually through uh, more research after the fact that when we have auditory hallucinations, they're processed in the brain in the brain exactly the same as actual auditory stimuli. So this is this is perceived by the brain as a real sound that you're hearing. And if it's a voice, then you dig deep and you say, what are they saying? Is it about me? And it just keeps going on this feedback loop. So the thing that helped me the most initially was just trying to let them, it was very difficult, but trying to just let them talk and think the burden of proof is now on them. I've tried everything except walking away from the roulette table. What if I do that? Because honestly, I, you know, I was kind of fatalistic at the time and I thought, well, if this is real, then yes, it'll be a big relief for it to end and go away. But the real biggest relief would be actually if a car pulled up, threw me in the trunk, and drove me to some basement somewhere, because then I'll know I was right. <laughs> and that's that's an extreme kind of feeling where I'm like, okay, let's just, I'll just let go and drift down river. And eventually when I hit the waterfall that I've been telling everybody exists further down the river, then they'll all know. And once I've disappeared, they'll be like, oh, man, we should have believed him. Like, the, I'll have this whole martyr experience, um, which is its, whole, its own narcissistic trip, which is kind of what this whole thing was anyway. Everybody's watching me, and I'm going to prove everybody wrong. What I had to do, eventually, I, I noticed after a while of I'll just let them prove to me that they exist and step into my life, I, st I tried to stop listening to when I'd hear some some kind of chatter in the background, I would stop asking myself, is it about me? Is it them? Which was very difficult. Like this took this took several years of telling myself to to do this. And eventually I noticed that they got quieter each time. And it took a while. In addition to, you know, typical things, self-care, more exercise, which results in more sleep which is also another very good thing for being in this in this scenario with you know an anxiety cycle and stuff like that um, because when i got tired they would get louder and then i'd stay up all night wondering what they're saying about me you know eating well uh, meditation was another thing because training myself to sort of observe my thoughts without engaging was a huge deal Kat, earlier you mentioned listening to the radio. That was another thing was podcast was very helpful because they were voices that drowned out the voices. Or I noticed that if I was reading a book, sometimes I would hear the voice speak up and start reading the book with me. And then so then it then it's just reading to me. Um, and then it would start to insert little little things. But if I could just get myself to focus on the book and meditation was tough because it's theoretically a quiet exercise, which is when they're 
the loudest, especially if you're, you know, sitting there with your eyes closed and they're like, what an idiot. Look at him sitting there on the couch being an idiot. So another thing that helped me initially was a friend of mine happened to get me a, a Tibetan singing bowl uh, one year for Christmas. And I used that, which get the, this this drone, this beautiful drone that sort of covered that and gave me something to focus on so that I was able to sort of, you know, just escape into that sound. And eventually I noticed that I could do it well enough that then I was able to to um, change over to non-sound aids like uh, a set of mala beads, meditation beads that I used, which are, it's just thick beads on a string, almost like a rosary or something, typically used to count prayers and stuff. But I was just using it to count my breaths so that I could focus on my breathing. And that gave me another grounding thing. All of these ideas were very improvised. And I should say also, the the caveat to all of this is that I probably would have benefited greatly from working with somebody like Laura or Francis um, in this case, but I did, I didn't have that. I went to an initial uh, psychotherapy appointment. I was recommended by a friend who's a, a psychotherapist, and I had a very helpful tear away everything that's not concrete proof kind of session with him. But I had the one session. Um, I'm an American living in America at the time. Insurance and you know mental health help is uh, really tough to come by. Um, so that's kind of all I got. So I kind of had to improvise the rest and it took a long time. And it was, it was, you know, also constantly telling myself sort of that, that agoraphobia that came up of everyone on the street is going to be watching me and, uh, you know, maybe I'll walk funny and then they'll be like, that's the guy, you know, whatever irrational things. And I had to notice those triggers and think every time I think I need to go to the grocery store but I really don't want to because I think everybody's going to think I'm some terrible person because of whatever. I had to turn that into an exercise and think like, go to the grocery store. And not only that, but on your way and in the grocery store and on your way back, you're going to make eye contact with, you know, not looking for it, not making crazy eyes at everybody, but just if you happen to see past somebody on the street, look at them in the face and smile as you pass them just like people do and you know try that for a while because they won't they won't put worst case scenario they punch you in the face that didn't happen and a lot of times i'd get a smile in return which made my day and just reinforced the fact that it's okay everyone doesn't hate me like i'm just going to the grocery store like everybody else so that was huge but it was a big combination of things that i had to kind of notice and dismantle about the assumptions that I had built up about what the world, how the world sees me. And that is amazing that you were able to do that and to actually make that space for yourself to do all those things and adapt as well. I love the the idea that meditation, sitting there quietly, probably wasn't the best thing, but you found ways of making it work for you. That's really, really inspiring to hear. And I think it just goes to show that there are so many different routes to these things, which I think is fantastic. And there were there were two parts of the book as well that I think really clearly share what can help. And I just wanted to bring those up as well. So one was, I think, when the character gains control over the voices and can start like manipulating what happens to them in his head is just 
that moment I was like doing a little cheer I was like yes he's figuring how to how to like quiet them down and to do that so I thought that was really incredible and also there is a point where he goes on a camping trip with two friends and again I'm going to read out a quote because I think it just encapsulates how connecting to others can be so powerful is really really helpful here and the quote is if I break from this triangle and flee into the forest I'd become a lone point in the tangle of possible constellations but if I walk back to camp, our triangle will remain its strong equilateral dimensions and point outwards at encroaching threats rather than stab inwards at itself. So I just wanted to include those two things because I think recognizing what's coming from you is so important and also being able to reach out to others is so helpful. Yeah, that was huge. Those camping trips were were a really great escape from the city as happens in the book also though those camping trips he he realizes there's a there's a good and a bad aspect to those because out in well i was living in los angeles at the time so this was the angeles national forest or in that particular scenario it's los padres up behind santa barbara it's just vast hills and you know it's 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 desert like there's there are trees and stuff oak trees and stuff like that but um but it, there are no walls that's the thing and and which means that there are plenty of places to run which i thought okay that's great like if i you know and i have a backpack full of survival equipment <laughs> with me this is great like i can i can do this but also it means that i could potentially see them there aren't a lot of walls to hide behind there are a lot of boulders and things and hills and things like that and then also there there was the question of are they using drones that are painted sky blue and like this whole thing but but yeah the the leaning on other people learning to finally confide in somebody else this that was another thing that didn't help me initially was that i i believed that my computer was being hacked i didn't want to reach out to somebody and especially online and have that somehow transmit whatever virus was happening to me to somebody else or bring somebody into my apartment and now there's video and pictures taken of these of my friend who now is going to go home and be followed and whatever so i there was a while when i i cut myself off from a lot of communication online and and hanging out with people which is problematic because then you're just sitting in your box with your thoughts and the voices but then also that was maybe kind of helpful in a way too because it kind of let that come to a come to a head without joining some message board that was going to tell me that it's QAnon or the Illuminati or this whole, you know, whatever, whatever kind of thing that I could wind up having any of this confirmation bias or something that that doesn't help me. It's this slippery slope of, oh, it must be this group of people or something, which, you know, I think that happens to a lot of people now because the Internet is a a wildly powerful tool for a lot of this stuff. And in the UK and in the US, we've seen <laughs> how that works or doesn't work. But uh, so that can be scary too. So I think cutting myself off was um, was good and bad. But those those escapes from that little box were very important to me. So I'm grateful to those friends. And then also connecting with my wife, who uh, at the time was uh, distant. She was living in Paris and we that was a scary thing too because I didn't want our long distance connection to be you know infiltrated um, so I cut myself off a little bit from there too 
And then when we finally got back in touch and I allowed that to happen, that was very helpful because she was a, a voice of reason. It was hard to accept because she's so far away. And so it was like, well, how do you know? You weren't, you didn't stay up, stay up all night talking to your smoke detector. Like I'm the one who, you know, I know what's going on. So it's a, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, but I kind of had to, I ha I had to accept the idea that either I trust absolutely no one and what do I do? Because I, I, my distrust of everyone will just expand to compress me and, you know, I'll just implode. Or I have to trust somebody. And, you know, I'll, I'll trust the closest people to me. I've, you know, the friends who I went hiking with, I've known them for so long that I was like, that's a, that's a long game if they're agents too. You know, if they're in on this thing, that's a, they've been doing a lot of hard work over years. So that's probably not the case. So I think I can... I think I can go on a trip with them and get out of my head a little bit. So, but it was tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And knowing when that point is to be able to start talking to those close to you as well must have been tricky. But so you've touched on there a few things that actually weren't helpful. And that actually leads me very nicely onto the next kind of section of this podcast to talk about what isn't helpful, because we always like to look at the nuance here. And I wonder, Francis, I'm going to come to you first on this. Can you? Tell us about anything that maybe you've personally found unhelpful when it's come to dealing with fear or also around hypnotherapy, maybe if there is anybody who maybe this wouldn't be the right approach for. So I think nuance is precisely the right word because we're all so nuanced and what works for one person will be totally different because uh, as Zach will tell you, we're all living in a completely different version of reality from one another. <laughs> And it's really important to acknowledge that no matter what modalities I might be working with, someone else may have learned those same modalities and be employing them in a completely different way. And it's about connection. It's about meeting with someone who is a therapist before you ever have a session and just to check that that connection is there that you're coming from a place where you can trust yourself to open up to whatever therapist it is that you're and and it's from that connection as Zach was talking about that 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 it works as such an anchor no matter what it is that we're facing uh, certainly when it comes to psychosis or auditory hallucinations it wouldn't be appropriate in my view to dive straight into some hypnotherapy it's about taking each case on its own merit and being really as brutally honest as we can all be about the the troubles that we're facing and from that place moving forward with the right therapist and it may be safe in in Zach's case I would love to work with Zach because what he's discussing is absolutely fascinating for me however is that appropriate and I would probably have referred him on to uh, a, a senior colleague who has specific expertise in Audrey hallucination and so nuance it's it's all about that yeah and I think as you said, like finding the right support for you as well and not being afraid to say no if it's not working out. Maybe you have a session with someone and you actually think this isn't somebody I feel 
comfortable opening up to being able to say, actually, no, this isn't working. I'm going to find somebody else or I'm going to try a different route. I think it's so important. So thank you so much for sharing that. And Laura, I'm going to come to you with the same question, really asking about anything that can potentially be unhelpful for people who are looking for support with fear and maybe just anything to be aware of. I mean, the, the kind of one word that answer comes to mind is the struggle. Like when you're in fear, struggling with it has a tendency to kind of exacerbate it because the more we try to avoid it, the more we try to get away from it, the, the worse and stronger it gets. Um, but actually, I kind of want to come back to to Zach's account there. Is it all right if I just kind of move on to that and just kind of explain something? So I was absolutely intrigued by by what you were saying there, Zach, because what I could hear in that was, and I'm sorry, I should preface this by, um, I used to work in um, a service for severe and enduring mental illnesses. So I've, I've had a lot of experience working with people with voices, auditory hallucinations, all kinds of psychosis and schizophrenia, like to, you know, inpatient level severity. So I, I, I've got quite a lot of experience in that area. So as I was listening to you, what I was noticing was just how how helpful and adaptive so many of the processes that you were using are. Like I think um, Kat used the term figuring it out. Like, this sounds like what you were doing. You were using your intelligence to figure out what would work. And it sounds like the turning point is rather than trying to work to get away from the fear, it's what would work to kind of move me to where I want to go. What would work to get me back to my life? It's it's not kind of how do I get rid of the fear? Because somebody who's trying to get rid of fear doesn't walk up to people and say, hi, how are you? When they when they think these people might, you know, put them in, in the back of a car and take them away. That involves facing a huge amount of fear. So the, the problem that you were attempting to solve was not how do I get rid of that fear at that point. It might have been previous to that. But as you figured it out, it's that healthy adaptive process of how do I move forward? What is going to work? And then just trying out loads of things. And if they don't work, you do something else. And so many of the things that you described are very, very helpful, like in in, in evidence. And where I would kind of map it onto, although you you can connect what you, your your description was to any, you know, there's very, very many approaches, therapies, um, uh, spiritual practices which would map on to what you're talking about there but I would probably map it on a little bit to my experience in ACT which is acceptance and commitment therapy and that is a therapy that is known to be effective in in hearing voices in, in all kinds of different experiences like that um, and it was one that I used to use back when I was doing that work but I also use it loads now and I use it for myself like where I use it a lot for myself is in um, like what I'm doing is new like in terms of my career so I'm always doing something that I is not particularly comfortable for me. So I use a lot of ACT in dealing with that. And it's obviously a different level. It's a different thing. But it's still me going forward and doing things that I find scary. So ACT has a lot of, um, it's a process-based model. So you'll recognise the processes. Uh, one of them is being present. So it's being present with what's happening and sitting with experience, just like you do when you're meditating. Another is sitting in the observer self. So seeing yourself as the context for the thoughts, noticing that these are thoughts are there, they're not you. And, part, and alongside that is diffusion, which is where you step back from a thought. So I think that's what Francis's book is about. Like, you're not your thoughts. You're able to see that there's me and there's that my thoughts, there's my fear, there's my experience, there's sensations that are going through my body. But I am separate from those. And then there is values. So knowing what matters. And although I don't think you touched on it that much, I think I think that would be there as well. Like it, it's, it's you getting back to life, like you know, what matters in your life. And when you start moving towards what matters and taking small steps, just like you were describing and kind of like going out to the shop or something, as you start taking these steps towards what matters, your life begins to expand and the fear is still there, but you kind of expanded out of it and you realize that you're bigger than the fear. And 
when we pull all of that together, the central process that unifies ACT is psychological flexibility. So the kind of central thing in ACT is what is the most healthy kind of way of being is being flexible, noticing what works, what doesn't work and dropping it if it doesn't and just continuing to move forward and acknowledging that there's going to be fear, there's going to be difficult thoughts, but we can still be flexible in the face of that. I could go on for quite some time. That, but... No, thank you so much for do, for sharing that. And I am going to pop some information about acceptance and commitment therapy in the show notes to this as well, because we've got some information on counselling directory. And I, I think it's such a interesting approach. And it's really interesting to hear how it can support in this area as well. The only other thing I was going to ask you, Laura, is, is there anything you would advise people to watch out for maybe when looking for support or any approaches that might not be beneficial for fears and phobias or anything like that? I mean, so I mean, following a little bit on from what Francis was saying there, I think it's 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 really the kind of, you know, what is looking for what people say they are. Like there are lots and lots of different approaches. There are lots of things that do work. There are many things that have good evidence bases. So I, I work in trauma a lot, and it's good evidence base there for acceptance and uh, sorry, uh, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which, of which ACT is kind of a part, and EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and that we know that the, those are effective for trauma and they're also effective for phobias uh, because phobias often come out of, of trauma. They often come out of something bad that happened to you or even the thought of something bad that happened to you that got stuck. So EMDR is effective for that too. So we know they're effective and we know that there's an evidence base for them. And there are many people who have been trained pr properly in the process that they're they're offering and have you know done all the things that they need to do for that. But there are also people who are doing that without having done the, the proper training. So if you, you know, it's it's not so much where you're at, but whether you've done the actual training for the thing that you're offering. And EMDR is quite known for that. Is that people um, think they're doing EMDR? I think I think I'm suspecting hypnotherapy would probably have some of the same issues that people think they're doing that process, but actually they haven't gone through the, the full training and kind of practice with it. So I think that would be my main thing would be to look out to make sure that the person that you're seeking support from is appropriately qualified to do the thing that they're offering and has, you know. What they usually have in place for that that can be a bit tricky to find but i know the the counseling directory is is very good in terms of having that checked before people have it on their profile so we can't put anything on a profile that we haven't got a qualification for so it can be a very handy place for checking that and you can also check directly with the organizations and there was something else i was going to say about that but i think it's just completely disappeared oh yes yeah i think i mean it's kind of a second answer in a way but the the big red flag for me is is when people kind of say things like the the difficulty is easy or like we can just suddenly work this out. And I think it's I'm sort of almost hesitant to say this because we were touching on this before, Francis, because I do EMDR and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is very similar to the way you were describing your work, Francis, really similar. And I do have sessions where suddenly like one session and you fix the issue, it does happen. But I think when that gets portrayed as like the norm or whatever, sometimes that can be a bit of a red flag. So if like if I question somebody about that and they said, oh, no, no, it's and, and that's where that's where. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not I'm not really saying that so clearly, but I think that's one of the kind of easy checks in a way, although it can be quite complicated. Too. No, I, I think you're right there. I think if somebody's there guaranteeing something. Yes. Saying I guarantee this is going to work in X sessions or this is a guarantee fix for your, all your fears and phobias, then that's a very good red flag, I think. To yeah. Look yeah. And alongside that, that kind of um, inability to be questioned, you know, if, mm, if exactly. I'm very keen on as a, as a, you know, 
potential expert person is that if I'm working with a client who is challenging me on something is is if I'm going to be defensive and not answer them I think that would be a red flag too definitely and I will say as well if anybody's um, listening to this and they heard the word trauma there and they're more interested about that we have got an episode dedicated to the topic of trauma coming up in this season so do keep listening for that as um yeah I mentioned some similar topics that talks about EMDR as well which is again I'll pop some information about that in the show notes because it's another fantastic fantastic therapy as well as um yeah the hypnotherapy that Francis is talking about as well so we've got some really great ideas there for people to try and experiment with to support themselves and to go in with insight and knowledge about what to look for and what to look out for as well. So before we wrap up, I was just going to ask if anybody would have any words of wisdom or perhaps something you would say to somebody who's currently struggling, maybe with a fear or a phobia, or even maybe to your past self. It sounds like everyone here has got experience of this. So maybe something you would say to your past self. And uh, Zach, I'm going to come to you first on this. Sure. There's an afterword to the novel that sort of outlines a little bit of some of the uh, coping techniques and stuff and and recovery that I'm talking about, because to finish the novel that way, that's its own long, boring novel of gradually, I'm not as anxious about this and everything's fine. And you can't do that for a couple hundred pages. So the, the, the novel is basically just gives you, he's on the edge of that precipice the character Alex is is right there and he kind of has a choice to make of which way do I lean and the afterward outlines some of these techniques and in the afterward I also address directly fellow voice hearers who might be reading the book and I just say this is probably the most reassuring and terrifying thing I could say to a voice hearer but you are not alone and I know there's a little bit of a winky joke in there but it but it's also true and it's something I I felt it was interesting when you contacted me about this cat and said that this was going to be framed as a discussion on fear, because it was only through writing the book and sort of looking back on this experience that I was able to see a through line of fear and phobic response and and defensiveness. Because honestly, through the experience, my the strongest emotion I was feeling was annoyance and frustration. Because, like I said, even fearing for my life it would have been a huge relief for somebody to leap out of the bushes and hit me in the head with a bat and I would die knowing that I was right. Like, that's that's fine. Please do that instead of letting me live the rest of my life wondering and constantly hearing this. So it was, it was that. It was frustrating and profoundly lonely because it was just me and I was kind of holding myself up and I felt like everyone else was just eyes watching me. So you are not alone. This is, I can't, emphasize that enough. I use a metaphor, a gardening metaphor in the afterward too, where I just, I, I see certain plants and potential weeds that had appeared over the years that I had sort of thought were pretty or helpful or whatever in my, in my mental garden that then got out of hand and they sort of wrap themselves around the more helpful plants and (laughs) strangle them out. And then it's, it's just, you know, paranoid ivy everywhere the next time you look around. So uh, taking walks through your garden and observing your own responses and things like that, that that plasticity and that reactivity and that observation of, of self is, is very helpful. So just try to look at it from, from different angles if that's what you're experiencing it, uh, if that's what you're experiencing. 
And I think it's a lot of people who've read the book so far said they were kind of surprised that it kept going after he realizes that it's in his head. Um, because you'd think that, oh, well, once you realize that the voice is in your head, it just turns off, right? I mean, because you know it's fake. And that is not true. And it <laughs> it could keep going. Like I I was reading not so reassuring articles about how people live in their entire lives with this once it crops up and you don't necessarily have symptoms of something else that you can then find a label for and and uh, go into, okay, what do I do? What kind of medication can I use for this? What kind of, it's just kind of, that's the only thing that you're experiencing. And then it kind of spiders out into other, other um, aspects of your life. But yeah, it doesn't shut off immediately. It's, it's perseverance and it's, um, attention and it's uh, deliberate a lot of deliberate stuff and and trying things and exposing yourself to knowing that just because something is uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's dangerous you know that's a huge thing because by avoiding the thing that you think is dangerous you're confirming that it's dangerous because that's why you're avoiding it and so as long as you avoid it it continues to be potentially dangerous until you do the thing and then you realize how dangerous it isn't some really, really helpful nuggets there, especially yeah, the avoidance part. I was nodding my head furiously as an anxious driver who avoids driving a lot. Yes, definitely something I need to work on. But yeah, really, really helpful there. And the you are not alone as well is so true. And I think that's something we've really uncovered in this podcast as well is the power of connecting to yourself as well, kind of intentionally to yourself, but also to those around you as well. Um, brilliant. Thank you. And if anybody does want to connect with you after listening to this podcast and learn more about you and your writing, where can they find you? Uh, well, you can find the book itself. It's called I Hear You Watching. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's available through Kindle Unlimited uh, for free, essentially, with a subscription. And then you can also find it on ebook and paperback on Amazon as well. And then my website is ZacharyDillon.com. That's D-I-L-L-O-N.com. Uh, um, and I'm on there. There's a mailing list and I've got some blog posts and stuff about this book and, and my other writing and upcoming more personal stuff and other projects and stuff like that on too. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And Francis, coming to you with this question about what you would say to maybe somebody who's currently struggling or again, even your past self. You can change your relationship to fear, just as you can change your relationship to thoughts. And there are people out there who can help you do that. So it's absolutely possible. I love that. And again, where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? So it's Francis Trussell. If you search Francis Trussell anywhere uh, or Mindfully Happy is my business. And you can find me on Instagram, uh, on the Internet. Uh, the book's called You Are Not Your Thoughts and also in all those good places. Perfect. Thank you so much. And finally, Laura, coming to you, is there anything you would like to say to anyone who's listening to this, nodding along, thinking, I need some support with this, or I'm struggling with this? Yeah, what would you say? Yeah, the first answer that came to my mind kind of sent me off into a, a spiral of different things, and it's even happening even more listening to you. But my first thought was was to stop struggling. But I'm also aware of how harsh that can sound when you are really struggling with something. So that has to be kind of put alongside tons of compassion and connection and um, self-care and and also values we touched on there before. Like is maybe turn and focus towards what, ma what matters, although that can be a little bit painful sometimes. You know, if you're in a hole and you're digging and it's not working and you're not getting out, well, put down the spade 
um, is that kind of stop struggling. It's 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 not kind of a blame stop stop struggling. It's a, it's kind of right. Okay, that's not working. Just just put it down. Just stop. You've got fear there. What can you do with that? And so, of course, alongside that, you need some connection in in order to do that. Because if you're in that on your own, it's it's very difficult. So alongside that, I think that kind of it ultimately comes down to more like an it's okay and I'm here is one of the best things you can ever say to somebody who's struggling with something is even if you don't understand what they're going through or you can't help, it's just the fact that, you know, I'm here um, can make a big difference. Yeah, that can make all the difference, can't it? And I really like what you said there about stop struggling. It's, it's as you said, it's said with kindness and it's said to kind of recognise, as you said, like put the put the spade down, stop trying to dig and just allow yourself to kind of deal with the core issue that's happening there. And again, if anybody wants to learn more about you and your work, where can they connect with you online? Um, yes, there's a few different places. So for my more general clinical psychology, that would be under drwalton.uk, um, the website, and it's also on the counselling directory under the same website. But for anything kind of more water-based, um, phobias, swimming issues, or scuba diving especially, and, and drowning, I have an interest in that, then fit to dive. So my website is fit to dive, which is kind of named around you know, how do we move towards what we want in life? Because um, I always want to be fit enough to be able to go scuba diving. That is also kind of on social media. So Facebook, Instagram, and I am on LinkedIn as well. And that's all under kind of fit to dive, fit to dive org is, is the kind of handle for that. And yes, the blog is attached to that too. And yeah, in fact, if you Google my name plus diving or scuba diving or diving psychology or something like that, I will, there's quite a few things will come up around that. Fantastic. And I'll definitely be sure to include links to all of these things in the show notes as well so that people listening can find find them easily. And for anyone who is listening, if you are looking generally for professional support, whether that is um, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, life coaching, we talk, we touched on some kind of more spiritual practices there. We also have holistic therapists as well. You can find all of those at happyfull.com. And I'm going to be back next week for our Exhale episode, where we're going to be delving into this topic of fear a little bit further. But until then, thank you so much for listening and please take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with anyone you think may benefit and rate and review the podcast. This all helps our mission of creating a happier and healthier society. To delve deeper into the topics discussed today and to find professional support that's right for you, visit happyfull.com. 